This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Hello and a very warm welcome back to the Best Friends Podcast. My name is John Dunn. Today is September the 14th of 2023. And yes, we are back finally with a new episode. I know we haven't had a new episode for a while, and that's because I've been on family leave in order to help my family when my dad fell ill. Now, friends, I got to tell you, it's been a wild ride. He went in and out of the hospital five times over the course of a couple of months. I hope I never spend another night in a hospital as long as I live for any reason at all as a patient or a guest, but I am thrilled to report that he is doing much better today. So now I have returned to work. The podcast too has returned and I am so, so happy to be back. Now, good thing I'm back now in mid-September because I want to make sure you know that the window to submit letters of intent for a Rachel Ray Save Them All or No Kill Excellence grant is now open, and it will be open through Friday, September 29th. If you don't know what that is, the Best Friends Network teams up with the Rachel Ray Foundation to award grants annually to organizations across the country. There are two types of grants, the Save Them All grants. Those are for projects that reduce the life-saving gap in shelters. And then we have the No Kill Excellence grants. Those are for organizations, shelters. They've already achieved life-saving success, and they're looking for ways to fund new, innovative programs and collaborations to grow their impact even further and to sustain the progress they've made. Now, information can be found on the Best Friends Network website, network.bestfriends.org. All the information you'll need in terms of who's eligible and how you apply and all that kind of stuff. You can also check out the show notes for this episode where I put links to all the things you need to know, again, to get your letter of intent submitted before the deadline on September 29th. Now, I got to say, being out for as long as I've been out, And in the way that I was out, it meant that I've been pretty disconnected. You know, I was very focused on my dad and his health and the rest of my family. I also didn't have access to email. So I came back and I feel really out of the loop. So I wanted to get caught up. So I checked in with the chief program officer for Best Friends, Mark Peralta. Hey, Mark Peralta. How you doing, man? Thanks for taking the time to chat today, buddy. Hey, buddy. Uh, I got to say, great to see you. You know, I've been out uh, uh, this summer. I've, I've mm-hmm. been out on leave. And I got to tell you, I am really, really out of the loop. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as I've been getting back up to speed and, and trying to see what's been happening across the country the last few months, mm-hmm. I've seen quite a few articles in the media, Mark, national stuff, NPR and the like, talking about the current state of animal sheltering. And there's a lot of blame being thrown around on sort of the reasons why and, yeah. you know, blame, I mean, all all sorts of places, including like, uh, you know, no-kill policies. And so, you know, I'll put some links to these articles in the show notes so listeners know what we're talking about. But, you know, I'm really hoping if we can start by you just helping to catch me up, you know, how are things looking across the country? Have things improved, you know, in terms of intake and outcomes? So for me, you know, I've been in the field Gosh, just I just celebrated 17 years since I started in an animal shelter. And taking a perspective of, of what's going on, the one thing I think is important is perception is reality. So you can't dismiss how people feel or what they're seeing. But there also is some things, hopefully, that, that uh, can kind of play out a little bit more when you are, are kind of looking at things through statistics and facts. But, you know, basically, this is a field that's in a slow-moving crisis, has been since the day I joined, 
has been decades before um, that has kind of really accelerated progress, at least in not killing healthy and treatable animals, specifically since the early 90s. Um, and we've elevated, you know, we talk about it a lot at Best Friends, you know, 17 million to now 380,000. It's a dramatic change. I mean, we don't know for sure statistics like going back and forth, but we just kind of knew how things operated, what were kind of the value systems of how do we find a, a good and decent death was kind of the driving forces of things before the no-kill movement started. And what I'm seeing right now is there's definitely a feeling of uh, exhaustion throughout the field. And, uh, and that is not a new feeling for me. Um, I think COVID has definitely exemplified maybe the removal of some long-term staff, certainly the compounding of exhaustion of people like me who've been in the field a long time, and certainly a perception of things have never been this bad, uh, specifically among a, a lot of newer people that have come to the field. And I think, again, you can't devalue how people feel about things. And I think that's important to note. And a lot of why we do this or, or helping people understand what's going on, trying to throw facts at an emotional issue doesn't really work. But there are facts. And I think those are things for a lot of people that can start to ride. Now, you're talking about a field now that has, you know, especially for us, if we're trying to stop killing 380,000 animals, and we're likely going to see that kind of same area um, because now we, we've been so successful, John, that a certain small percentage of shelters, there's, there's I don't know, 100 shelters maybe that have 5,000 or more intake out of over almost 4,000. That's like unheard of. Like a 5,000 animal shelter when I started in 2006, kind of a smaller shelter um, when it comes to animal population. But that being said, everything for me doesn't resolve in pet overpopulation. I, I really kind of struggle with those terms. And you hear a lot of that in these articles that you're kind of referencing. There's a lot of pets that need help, um, but not all of those pets effectively go to shelters to be put at risk, at least of being killed simply for space. What I think more of the issue is, and I think COVID in some ways helped this and also amplified the issue, is it's a really about bottlenecking. And people hate to try to use business terms when it comes to shelters, John, but like what we're seeing right now is, is intake higher than last year? It has been, but like as a movement in 2020 from 2019, that intake dramatically dropped because shelters were closed, you know, intakes were going. So then now we're competing against a completely unrealistic drop in intake from 2020. We're still far under the numbers of 2019, but that is climbing year over year and getting closer. But the trajectory that we had at Best Friends of where we thought we would be in 2022, not understanding there was going to be an epidemic is about where we are. So I think it's a little bit of, of re-establishing, but I do think there is some change in society that I see. Uh, mostly animal shelters have lived off of the ability to find people that just really care and don't really care about how much money they make. And when you're working in a municipal environment or in a shelter, that's sometimes not going to fly anymore. Like you can't pay people $7.50 and expect them to deal with a really difficult job that actually has to do with life and death. Like people join these organizations to save lives. Um, so I think there's things there. And if you think about cities and there's a big city in Texas where I'm, I was talking to one of their leaders and she was telling me that it's, you know, five to six months to replace a kennel attendant because of city bureaucracy and not finding ways. So all of this stuff kind of compounds, but I do think a lot of this can be solved in the shelter level. And a lot of it is going maybe back to some of the things that we knew that worked. How easy 
are we making it for people to come? Is it a welcoming environment? Are we not stopping people from going and seeing animals and adopting? Can we start to work through um, national organizations like Petco and like Best Friends and Bissell and all these places that are doing a lot of adoption promotions and really amplifying those kind of things? Because, you know, there's all kinds of statistics out there, John, that you know, 15 to 17 million new pet owners are going to be looking to acquire new pets next year. Taking in the account that we need about 3 million to maintain um, the level of outcomes that we need that we've had already, and then amplify that maybe by another 400,000. I mean, the math is there if we can just get that little niche, but a lot of where that gets lost is shelters that are inefficient, um, animals that aren't you know, moving through the system quickly enough, the adoptions are not keeping up with the intake. So if even if the intakes are going up, you know, and the adoptions are staying or multiplying, that's what's causing longer length to stay, meaning animals staying in shelters. And that puts animals at risk more than anything, just staying too long in shelters. They deteriorate in behavior, medical. So I don't think things have changed that much for you, John, since you've been gone. I think it's more of the same, but I think the perception is reality of there is more of a gaining voice of this kind of not solution-based kind of um, conversations, more of almost therapy, you know, which is important of people just really wanting to acknowledge to one another how hard this work is. And this hard, this work's been hard forever. And, and it's going to remain hard even after we're no-kill uh, as a nation. It's just working with animals, having to get them out, having to rely on donations, having to rely on adoptions, always trying to balance you know, municipal organizations that have to protect public against animals, but also do life-saving is always kind of a, a, a art and a science. So it's, it's just, it's a hard field, almost maybe like healthcare or something like that, where people expect it to get easier as things go along, but there's just different kind of difficulties when you're dealing with real lives. So the NPR article opened this way, no-kill animal shelters across the southern U.S. are overcrowded and have few alternatives to find space or staff. Much of the problem is due to pandemic pets that people don't want anymore. Is that true, Mark? You know, what I think in part I heard you say is that, you know, it's almost like we need something or, or someone to blame to make sense of the chaos that we're in right now, right? We need a, a, a place to put the burden. Like, it seems that for some that, you know, folks surrendering pets is the place to put that blame, the direction to point that finger. But is it true? Is it true from your perspective, do you think? What does the data show? Is it true that pandemic pets uh, that people don't want anymore are being returned at you know some astronomical rate? So, John, there's no statistical evidence of any large-term increase in percentage of returns versus other years when it comes to pandemic pets. I think it's a catchy byline. I think we in our field in animal welfare sometimes like to find boogeymen and say this is the public's fault, it's not our fault, because it alleviates maybe some of the pressure that we feel on the day-to-day. -day. And I can certainly understand that as somebody that's dealt with that pressure for almost two decades at this point. But no, it's important to note that this isn't because people, all of a sudden, more people just don't care about pets because they got, there's no statistical evidence to back that up. The increase mainly in intakes are stray dogs, which some of that could be pointed to as economic. Um, those are animals that likely have homes, but you know, not being able to be contained properly, those kind of things that, that are rising up. And if, again, we're not efficient in how we run our operations as a shelter, or it's not easy to find our animal, be it they're clearly identified online, or it's easy to walk in and walk around and see if I can find my dog, um, or even there's kind of just some basic level of marketing of what to do. Because if you live in a big city, 
I mean, it's it's hard sometimes to navigate as a normal public person, like how to, how to find those kind of animals. So animal owner surrender rates are not increasing, certainly 20, 2022 over 2021. So that's the first indicator. And two, you know, could it be true in a specific community? Yes. But I would say if somebody's telling you that to show you in the statistics, because what you would see is a large number of, and, and again, if you have a hundred more intakes and your percentage of um, returns is 20, you know, 20%, say, you're going to maybe have 20 more aggregate returns if you have a thousand more animals, but it doesn't mean that there's a bigger problem. That percentage is not changing. Well, so it's interesting that you mentioned the economy and stray surrenders. You know, we know that when people are struggling, animals and animal shelters are going to feel that. Yeah. So I thought I could look up some individual communities, just see how things were going. And uh, using Kansas City as an example, one of our great network partners there doing the sheltering services for that community, KC Pet Project, they've been on the podcast before. They said July for them, July 2023, was the toughest month they've seen in 11 years. Toughest in 11 years. Bear with me with some stats here. But they had more dog intakes than in the city's history, more than 800 dogs, a 24% increase in dogs brought in as strays. Right. Since the start of 2023, their overall intake up 61%. I mean, really pretty wild stats. Right. So then I went and looked at data on the eviction lab, great project tracking eviction rates across the country. I'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Sure enough, evictions are up dramatically in that community. But I think the important part here is that because they have a strong set of no-kill programs, they focus on life-saving, they've figured out how to prioritize their resources in this really tough time, And they're able to achieve a 91.6% save rate. That's over 90 for dogs, 90.2%, and 93% for cats. Their dog adoptions, while so many places are struggling with with adoptions, their dog adoptions are up 10% over last year at the same time. And I'm sure some people will say, well, KC Pet Project, you know, they've got a lot of money. They're well-funded. Yeah, I think they've done a really good job. Uh, raising support for their work. They weren't always well-funded, right? But they've been effective in raising support for for their effort. And unquestionably, their life-saving no-kill mission was a part of that. You know, as it turns out, donors much prefer to to give to life-saving. But I think if we want to say, we just want to step back and say, does this work or not? It does work, even when times are really tough. No, absolutely. I mean, this is a problem that we know how to solve. I think it's how we get to points where we get buy-in to be able to be allowed to do some of the things that we need to do. Like, you know, if you have more animals, stray dogs coming in and you're an animal control agency, are you actually trying to do return from the field and some of those kind of newer programs that you'll see in places like Kansas City? Because most of the time those animals are in the neighborhoods or close to the neighborhoods they're found in. So no, I, it's definitely, I mean, you, you're talking about almost 60% of brick and mortar shelters also are, are achieving 90%. But again, achieving 90% doesn't mean the work doesn't stay hard. The field is hard, but you know, how we continue, but I will tell you, you know, as somebody that's worked from basically every level of the organization, the thing that rides the hardest and the most damaging for me is that maybe even more so than when I was the person having to euthanize animals, which I did, and I mean, and, and kill animals, frankly, thousands uh, was when I was assigning staff members who just wanted to come and work with animals and, and their job was that, that day to be in those places, like that kind of trauma and damage that we have just kind of forgot in, over time as kind of being the biggest issue and probably one of the biggest issues of why we don't evolve. So we have a, a blueprint, like you said, John, like, and a lot of it is how are we making sure that we're being more efficient to get animals from intake to out to getting out, whether, you know, through a home, 
through a transfer, transport, whatever we can do. But mostly adoptions really to me are the answer because a lot of the places that are struggling, I talk like the city of Houston is probably the best example of this. They rely heavily on transports and those are where they're going to rescue groups and either locally or in other states and places like that. But they don't adopt as a community. Over 15% of their intake is all that they adopt out to their local community. They just, for whatever reason, don't feel either don't budget to the amount of need that they could be solving that solution in an adoption. I'm not saying there's not other problems there, but when you have a bottleneck and you're struggling in, a, in an environment like that, yet you know, right now you only have 15% of your animals that are reaching public adoptions in your own community in a huge city like Houston, there's definitely some at-shelter stuff that we know how to do. Like, how are we managing our budgets to make sure that life-saving is a little bit more of a priority events, some of the things that we're talking about. And Kansas City Pet Project's a really good example. Like we do know how to do this. Doesn't mean it's easy work, but a lot of this can be solved at a shelter level, at least in regards to not keeping animals in shelters and and stopping shelter killing. You talked there about you yourself having to be the person in the shelter ending the lives of pets, Mark, and you know, also having to assign your animal loving staff to work in those roles. And as you point out, no one in this field wants to do that, right? We don't get into animal welfare to end lives. We become passionate about this field because we want to save them. You know, I work for best friends in part because I want to do what I can. So no one has to do that anymore. So to me at this point in time, debating the efficacy of no kill, it just seems so ludicrous, like decades old arguments, right? You know, what more proof can people need that no kill is not only achievable, but achievable everywhere and that it's sustainable? Yes, things are challenging now, But blaming programs that we know work really just doesn't seem to be very helpful to me. You know, none of it's new criticism, but I think, you know, unfortunately, there really are, uh, you know, some folks just using this terribly difficult moment in time to try tear down the work of thousands of organizations, shelters and rescues across the country, you know, going after programs, proven programs like managed intake, saying it just turns people away. You know, no kill is just warehousing animals. All the old, tired, already myth-busted arguments are just being given new life right now, it feels you know, and I think all the more frustrating when there doesn't really seem to be a whole lot in the way of alternatives proposed by those same folks. You know, pretty pretty frustrating stuff, I think, Mark. I think it's just a reflection of society. I mean, going, you know, there's a lot to unpack there, but I would say, you know, first and foremost, I've, I've been a shelter director. I've been under fire. I've walked into places that have a 10% save rate, you know, when I started. And it feels like there's just too much, like, you know, and, and the last thing I need is somebody else telling me I should be doing better. And so, you know, when you're in these positions, it almost feels like you're in a hurricane. So it's hard to not see any kind of criticism as not helpful criticism. And it's also easy for us as a public to really cling on to extremities. Like you see this in politics, right? Like, uh, you know, if, if I'm a Republican and I think about Democrats, I'm going to think about the fringes of fringes Democrats and vice versa. And I see that kind of as kind of a human because you feel attacked. So what you're doing is you're building walls up to, to kind of, you know, just to try to disavow any messaging that's coming from that end. And I have a lot of, of empathy and sympathy for people that work in shelters, but I also fully recognize that a lot of institutions, and, and bear with you, animal welfare is definitely an institution that sometimes it's hard for us to see outside of our four walls. And I think that no kill is often framed up as it means animals, you, you say no to animals, or it's you know very fringy, 
you know, you don't want, and really it's, it's no kill is more of a philosophy, you know, and I think some people will say no kill are these nine things. Well, those are components of something that, a you know, maybe a healthy shelter does, but they're scaling and there's community involvement and things like that, that sometimes aren't taken into consideration and scaling, meaning a lot of shelters will say, well, I do foster care, but if you only have five fosters and you have 5,000 animals coming in, that's not scaling. That means that you're not doing it enough or, or it's not there where it's going to be, you know, enough to kind of solve your issue. But, you know, long and short of it is uh, like any any movement that's meant to stand up for things. Uh, it's it's and it puts accountability on people. Like even just saying like every shelter in the nation should have a ninety percent save rate. When you have a very decentralized industry like animal welfare, people don't want to be told what their success measures are. So sometimes it's as simple as that. Secondly, we want to help people get lost in details. Well. What about save them all? I hate save them all. What about the dog that, you know what I mean? I said, once we're talking about that, that, that's a great issue to have, but people's heads go directly to the animals that should be put down because it's the nice thing and it's actual euthanasia. But is that really the lion's share of the issue in most of these places? No, it's places that kind of frankly don't know what else to do or they hold on to animals too long and the animals deteriorate. It's about, like you said, life-saving. It's about you know pushing things forward. But I think a lot of it is people don't want to be told to be held accountable. And honestly, like for me, that's a problem. These are animal lives. These are shelter workers. And and the thing that's hard at times is people that fight this the most often are shelter workers because they're the ones in the immediate are in the hurricane. So it's just added pressure to what they're already dealing with. But I think the thing that I always saw and I tried to teach people when I was a manager in a shelter directly was we're always going to be in this hurricane if we're not being honest about what's savable and what's not. And that's what no-kill is. It's why we use the term no-kill. It doesn't mean that nothing gets euthanized, but it means we don't use euthanasia to just umbrella every end-of-life decision that happens in a shelter because they're not always euthanasias. Well, you referenced some of your experience, Mark, you know, that back when you started over 20 years ago, that, you know, there were similarities, right? That the that you had feelings of being so overwhelmed and, and under-resourced, like every day was a crisis. And, you know, the, it was really more the norm that shelters were, were not saving the majority of pets in their care than, than the exception. But thinking back to those times, Mark, you know, I'm just curious, how did you manage through it, right? As you said, we've got a lot of turnover in animal welfare. So for a lot of staff, this moment in time is new for them. It's foreign to them. They don't have that prior experience to lean on to know how or how not to get through it the best way. You know, this podcast, one part of our content we offer through the Best Friends Network, podcasts, program spotlights, editorials, town halls, webinars, all that kind of stuff, all to help folks implement programs that can help them save more lives. But when things are so overwhelming and you've, you're understaffed, I just can't imagine how daunting it must feel to consider starting a coordinated entry or managed intake program. Like really easy for me to say from my podcast host seat, right? So what advice do you have for folks uh, that are that are feeling the crunch right now, Mark? Yeah. And, you know, and I've, I've worked in large organizations where I had a board and I had, sometimes I was a couple layers under a person. And then obviously I've worked up to a place to being in a position where I actually had a little bit more authority or even was a CEO of an organization. In any aspect, it didn't matter what level I was on, I knew that there were things that I, I could control, um, that I could do better. 
Um, so if I'm working in a shelter, some of the things that I'm doing is, can I make sure that these animals are properly being set and ready for adoption as quickly as possible? That's kind of a thing that I can control in a lot of ways. You know, maybe I can't do all the data entry or some of those kind of things, but you have to find ways to acknowledge accomplishments, even if they feel small to you. There's ways that you have to pick apart, you know, kind of things like, like if you're in that big city in Texas and you can't hire people, well, what can I do regularly to make sure that maybe I can, you know, maximize some ability of staff? Maybe I can send a couple of emails every day. What are things that I can control, right? To start moving this huge barrier along to try to be, you know, maybe get my boss effectively to kind of support me more. But there's, it's the small wins of things that you need. I think the second thing that that's really important and things like, and I will push the Best Friends Network here, is not even just for resources. It's, you know, if I didn't have a contact list full of people like me, I would have never survived. Like I needed, you know, on my lowest of lows, I needed people to kind of build me up because I, you have a lot of low days um, where something really bad happens and you're kind of contemplating, can I, can I do this forever? Or sometimes I'm faced with situations I never could have imagined that I can get walked through. But I think the thing too, that's the most important, and I talked about this actually at this year's Best Friends Conference, and I do mean this, is also I want people that are going to effectively help me do better. So I want to try to find people in this field that aren't just going to always pat my back and tell me I'm always right and I'm always doing things the best I can. And when people think about no-kill, it's almost trying to do that for the field. It's We know the field's amazing. We're in the field. But we know we can do better. And starting with just stopping killing as a means of just you know doing what's something to an animal and we don't know what to do, what else to do with it. And that's basically why we started doing it. It was to bail ourselves out. We're not anywhere near a point where that should be happening anymore. And it's because we can do better. So how are you going to find people in your network that just aren't going to, yeah, 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 and tell you how great you are all the time? You know, John, you and I had a, a, a relationship like this early on. And I, I would be honest to say that I don't know that I dealt with it well, but it was something that I appreciated. And we had a situation, if you don't remember where you were working at Best Friends, and I was pretty brand new um, as an executive director. And we had the situation where we worked in a city facility and had to follow city rules. And you were hammering me on why we made the decisions that we did. And I didn't appreciate it at the time. But I remember just a few minutes later going like, thank God I have people like that because it does keep me honest. You know, the worst thing that it can have is when you think you have everything figured out and nobody knows anything because other perceptions of things, perceptions, reality. And that was one of the things that really bonded me to you, John, because I said, this is a guy that didn't care what my title was. Um, and that was going to tell me what he thought, whether I agreed with it or not. Those are some of the best friends that you can have. And I think you need to have people like that in your network too, that can say, yeah, I don't know that that was the right decision. Why did you go that route? Because sometimes people see things in you that you don't see. And that's how you get into positions where I'm able to do the job that I am at Best Friends, because this was not my path that I thought I was going to be able to be a C-suite member of a national organization. People, other people saw it in me and wouldn't let me off the hook. Gosh, it's a miracle I have anyone left that I can call a friend. I do appreciate you being able to see me uh, for who I am, Mark, someone with uh, way more confidence than he really ought to have, I think. No, no, no. I think at the time, it's exactly what we talked about, John. I was under heat. I'm dealing in a bad situation. I feel like somebody else is criticizing me. And maybe you were, but I think you also worked for my organization and you thought maybe we could have thought about things differently and should have done better. And those are the kind of friends that you need in this field. Well, if I think back to when we started the podcast, you know, the pandemic was setting in, lockdowns were starting to happen. We talked a lot over the following months about the economy, about jobs, about rents, like this other shoe was going to drop. 
Well, here we are now, September 2023. Interest rates, something bananas, like over 7%. You know, there's uh, more talk of a coming recession in the economy. I'm not an economist by a long stretch, but I know enough to know that this will impact families and pets. Uh, and and it, really, that's all just a long way of saying that we might want to prepare ourselves for this to get worse before it gets better. You know, I'd love to be able to say, just hold on till October, November, folks. Things are going to get better. But I don't think we can say that yet. So, Mark, I'm curious. You know, I know you always have one high eye on the data. Is there any understanding of what we might be heading towards? I don't think... As far as shelter killing, things need to get worse. Like there's definitely a lot of animal issues, right, out there. And I think there's definitely everything that you said is is true. And and economy does definitely affect intake rates and and seizures and those kind of things. But in a lot of different ways, you know, it's it's really tough to own a pet. I actually just did a segment with another talk about how helping people understand how to stretch their dollars because dollars because, you know, it's it's expensive to own a pet. But I will say this, like when you have shelters that are set up to be the just that, a shelter of care for an animal, managed intake and things like that are important because it's not a no, it's a it's an organized way to prioritize the best outcome or the best opportunity for the animal. And a lot of times it's not the shelter and a lot of times it is, but it's not no or yes, it's more of a kind of triage system where you're trying to help people. And I do think that will help keep us from choosing to kill healthy animals because the economy is bad. And we've certainly have those kind of inflections and in, in our economy in the past, specifically, you know, just living through kind of, you know, living in Reno where, you know, I don't know, 35% of the population were losing their homes in 2009, something crazy like that. But that being said, to, to think that it's not going to have an effect would be naive, but it's also not going to be the driver where everything's going to get worse. And again, like you have the ability, like you see the story that you told the Kansas City Pet Project, we know how to do this and how to kind of set up kind of functional things to support shelters, to not let killing be an option for a healthy, treatable animal. And it's just simply the right thing to do. And sometimes also there's other things that are popping up, resource potentials, where if people are going through hard times, they can rely on uh, other services. They can e even you know, rely on a um, foster for a while until they can kind of get back on their feet. Or some people still will figure that, that, that piece out. You know, I've been working with um, the unhomed and dogs since before I was in animal welfare. So you definitely see people that are amazing pet owners that even, you know, don't have a, a mailing re residence, but, you know, pets provide such a unique and, and important piece to any family or any person. And we need to figure out ways to not allow us to f make an excuse to allow to end the lives of pets, even if the economy is bad. So I, I think we're going to work through it. I definitely look at statistics. Um, again, you're not seeing uh, owner surrender intake surges right now, even with dogs nationally. Like you said, it could be taking place in a certain month or in a certain community because people love their pets and they're going to figure out ways to keep their pets at all costs. So if we can find more opportunities to help people uh, keep their pets or, or reuniting their lost pets, I think we're going to be just fine. So to start to close this out, Mark, you know, I think it is probably sort of broken record time, but back to basics, okay? Make sure you're doing those basics. Community cat program, reducing barriers to adoption. Make sure you're open when the public can actually come visit you. Yeah. Make sure people who lose their pet 
can very easily see lost pets you have in your care on the website, but also that they can see, you know, pets in the facility if they come to you so they can get their pet home safely. We've got resources on all of these things. I'll put links in the show notes. And we've got folks at Best Friends across the country who are there to help you with your life-saving work. So please reach out to us. No one should feel alone doing this. But again, you know, one theme takeaway maybe just make sure you're doing the basics the best you possibly can. Yeah, and and celebrate your wins along the way because a lot of this mentally is is how is your outlook and and if we continue as a field to just kind of wallow in how hard our work is and that there's no opportunity for any kind of success like who wants to join that club? And there is success and we've been so successful and you're being very successful. Like it's people just don't sometimes see the forest from the trees because it is hard work and it's important to acknowledge that, but don't get lost in the fact that you're saving lives and so many more lives, you know, the national save rates in the 80 percentile, like it's crazy how much we've come as a, as a field and just don't, don't throw the baby out the bathwater on this stuff. Like, don't forget that stuff because that's the stuff that gets me through. Well, that's such an interesting point. Like the goalposts have moved, you know, I think if you said to most people in this field 20 years ago, Hey, in 2023, the national save rate will be above 80%. And we will know that because we will have the most complete data set in history with known data for pushing like 90% of all shelters. And yes, by the way, we will actually know how many shelters there are That's something we didn't know 20 years ago. You know, I think if you said that to most people in this field 20 years ago, they'd be pretty excited about where we are today. So yes, things are tough. It's not at all to demean or or invalidate the things that are happening now. But, you know, we are doing so well. And I know it's easy to get caught up in what's wrong. I doom scroll with the best of them. But please don't forget where we came from. You know, we've, we've made so much progress. Mark, I appreciate your time and perspective. I'm sorry I missed the conference also, I should say. Highlight of my year. So that was a tough one. Yeah, it was a good one. So, uh, well, there's always next year and we'll be in Orlando. Yeah, and the reason I wanted to mention that, I think also, Mark, is is just back to something you said earlier, is that this work is better and easier when we do it together. We come together for things like the Best Friends National Conference and it fills our cups, right? Um, But, you know, we need to stay connected all year long, not just over three days where we come together in a hotel in some part of the country. So if you're listening to this and you're struggling and you feel alone, damn it, email me, podcast at bestfriends.org. We can help connect you to other partners in your area, to best friends folks near you. Reach out to each other, lean on each other, help each other. This work is hard enough. No one should feel isolated and alone. Yeah. And just remember, great things don't happen easily. So you're doing great work every day. It's why it's hard because it's super important. And uh, we're figuring things out every year. And I do think once we stop killing, it's a whole different picture of what this evolution of this field can actually come to. But we have to erase the fact that we can just always go back and, and kill an animal if we don't know what else to do. And that's what we're trying to stop with 2025 to then proceed on to what's next and how we really try to do some crazy things to make this field evolve. Again, thank you to Mark for taking the time to chat and get me back up to speed. And to all of you for subscribing and rating the Best Friends podcast. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for lots of information and resources related to this episode. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends podcast.